actually, I'm quite impressed that you all braved the deluge and were able to come through that rain. I mean, I came in um, sopping wet. Manny was just cracking up at me, but uh, uh, it's just good to be together, huh? To hear the word and to sing to Christ and to meet some new friends. I I think there's some new visitors I need to meet. Um, But why don't you turn with me? We're going to go to... As you know, um, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 24, uh, just, just for the benefit of those joining us. We're going through a series of Jesus through the Old Testament, and actually Jesus can be proclaimed through all of the Old Testament. And We want to see and take a look at how this Christmas story that we so treasure of the Messiah coming to save his people from their sins is not a new story. It was prophesied, foreshadowed, type, typologied, typecasted, I guess, typed. It was uh, alluded to all through the Old Testament. And I hope by God's grace, as we go through it, I would hope to prove that to you through Scripture and also that you'd be encouraged and lifted up to know just how much your Savior loves you. So, of course, this is Jesus through the Pentateuch. And in Luke chapter 24, this is what Jesus says about himself. We remember in the road to Emmaus. He says in Luke chapter 24, O foolish, verse 25, O foolish men slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ? By the way, the word Christ is the Greek translation for Messiah. It simply means anointed one. It is God's chosen one. Christ is not Jesus' last name. He is the chosen one of, of, of God to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. So we look at this verse and he's saying all that the prophets have spoken of. And you notice in verse 44 in another appearance. He says, these are my words which I have spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so what we're doing is we're taking a look through the scriptures in this tripartite division of scripture. That Jesus says the law of Moses, that would be the Pentateuch. The prophets, that would be uh, the major and the minors, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea, Nahum, Habakkuk, you could add all of the rest. And then the Psalms, which would also include the Psalms and the wisdom literature. That would be Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and all those things. But just for fun, I'm going to teach you some Hebrew. How about that? And to wake you up, right? So the first part, this is how they would divide the Old Testament. They would call it the Torah. Can you say that? All right, Torah. And the Neve'im. Nevi'im is the prophets and the Ketuvim. The Ketuvim would be the wisdom literature. And so with that in mind, my whole point, our whole prayer by God's grace is simply this. You know, typically I would preach an applicational sermon where you got to do something and, or believe something and trust something. All, I, all I, my heart is, is that after we go through this lesson, and this is the second portion of the Pentateuch, Our prayer is that this morning that you would just marvel and worship Jesus, your Messiah. That's it. That you would stop and 
not be so enamored with this world that you would remember that there was a God who sent his only son on your behalf for your sins. So why don't you pray with me as we go through this study. Father, we just pray. We're just reminded. Lord, I I don't think we sit and think about what a gift your son was. I think we, we complain too much. And as much as we see in the Old Testament how the Israelites were rebellious and complaining and we always say that they were, Lord, I see myself right there. I pray, Father, in just this hour we would see the glory and the wonder and the beauty of Jesus Christ. We would be captured again. Our hearts filled. Our minds filled with a little bit more depth of just how you have promised him, alluded to him all the way through. God, there is nothing wrong with your word. It's our minds. Our minds have not, are are still clouded, Father. We still love this world too much. We're still thinking about our own Christmas gifts of material things. Or have we not really thought and pondered the gift giver? And so this Christmas season, we know Christ was born in the spring. We know it wasn't in the winter. We know all those things, but Father, it is such a good season for us to just dwell on this Messiah, this baby, who came on a mission to die for our sins. I pray, Father, if there are those who are hurting or discouraged, going through great trial, I pray that you would encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen. So this portion is Jesus through the Pentateuch or the Torah, right? It's the first portion, the law of Moses. When you say the law of Moses, it's not, to, it's not sometimes it depends on the context. It doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments. But the law of Moses here is the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books. Last Sunday we went through Genesis because it's a longer book. But this Sunday we're going to attempt to go through the other four. So let's see if we could do that. Um, and still have lunch later on. How about that? Yeah. So the first, the first is what we're going to see is the Messiah in Exodus. And if you want any notes, Brother Manny has it in the back. You might want to jot some down. In the book of Exodus, as you know, the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians, by a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, But here, Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one chosen by God, we see in the Exodus, we see that there is, God continues his covenant with Israel. So why don't you turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. And we're going to be going through a lot of scripture today. Uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus is the second book. And if you notice, in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23... You will see that it is not a bunch of books that are disjuncted, separate from each other. But there is this storyline that keeps going through all the way from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. 
And he says here in Exodus chapter 2, 23 to 25. <coughs> now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. And they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. And you remember from Genesis, God heard their groaning. It's amazing. He hears our prayers. Do you know you could actually pray to God and say this actually hurts? Not in a complaining way, not in a disrespectful way. You could say, God, this actually hurts a lot. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You recall those names. Those are the patriarchs. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice. But all through the book of Exodus, we're going to see messianic redemptive themes. The Messiah's redemptive themes. And one of the first ones you'll see is one of sacrifice. There has to be a sacrifice. Notice in Exodus chapter 12. Let's turn there. Exodus chapter 12. And verses 5 through 7. In Exodus chapter 12. Verses 5 through 7. He's talking about the Passover lamb. He says, your lamb shall not shall be in an unblemished male a year old you may take it from the sheep or from the goats you shall keep it till the 14th day of the same month then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight and then you recall moreover they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which you eat it verse 13 the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses which you live and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land. And so here is the story, if you recall. Pharaoh would not let Israel go. And this last plague that God would uh, place into Egypt for the freedom of his people was through this blood sacrifice. We call it the Passover lamb, Pesach. And if you recall there, the blood was sprinkled on the mantle and the two doorposts. And as that blood was sprinkled there, the angel of death would pass over those houses that were covered with the blood. And we know in the New Testament, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, as an illusion of exodus of the Messiah, he already says, for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. So from the beginning of exodus, the Passover lamb is a clear allusion to Christ. And if you keep your thumb here in exodus and turn to John chapter 1 and verse 29, John chapter 1 verse 29, you notice that John the Baptist when he takes a look at Christ, he sees the foremost attribute of him. He says in Luke, John chapter 20, 1, 29, excuse me. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's amazing. That was an illusion in Exodus and now he calls Christ this lamb, this sacrifice, who will take our sins. Notice in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, John the Apostle still continues with that redemptive theme started all the way in Exodus. 
in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. He says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And then verse 12, Revelation chapter 5, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All this to say, brothers and sisters, that the baby that was born in a manger was the Lamb of God that was foreshadowed in Exodus, that was talked about in John chapter 1 when John the Baptist saw Christ, that was elaborated on by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and that is being worshipped forever and ever in Revelation chapter 5. The story hasn't changed. This is amazing. Jesus then is our Passover lamb. Another redemptive theme that is seen in Exodus is that of deliverance is that of deliverance. You notice, if, I, if you would turn back with me to Exodus chapter 18, Exodus chapter 18, after they've been delivered, you recall Moses goes to his father-in-law Jethro in Exodus chapter 18 in verses 9 through 11. Jethro rejoices over the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven that they dealt proudly against the people. And here we see a redemptive theme from Exodus. It's not just that uh, Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. It's also that Jesus Christ brings deliverance to his people. And this deliverance is a deliverance in Egypt. It was out of slavery into the promised land. That was the promise. Jesus Christ says that that is actually a picture of me delivering my people. And he says this in Colossians chapter 1 and verses 13 to 14. He says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And the illusion is very, very clear. What's the illusion? Well, in Exodus, it was the removal of his people out of slavery into the promised land. In Colossians, when Paul talks about Jesus, it is the removal of his people out of slavery of sin and the oppressive nature of sin and bringing us into his beloved kingdom. Did you know sin is oppressive? It's not just that uh, we do bad things, but it's actually enslaving and you would, you would remember that if before you were a Christian. That I was under the power of sin and I could not free myself. It wasn't until Christ rescued me as a deliverer into his new kingdom. And I know if you know him, there's an amen in your heart with that. So I'm no longer a slave to it. It's an amazing thing. 
You come to Christ and your life has been transformed upside down. But not only is there a theme of deliverance, there's also a theme of provision in the book of Exodus. As the people in their rebellion were in the wilderness, God nonetheless provides for his people. And we know if uh, one of those provisions was manna. Manna from heaven, if you remember in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 12, it was when God would provide miraculously for them in the wilderness. He'd give quail, but he would also give this, we don't really know what it was. It was this kind of bread that you would gather and it only lasted for a day. Exodus 16 verse 12 says, I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them and say, at twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you will be filled with bread and you will know that I am the Lord your God. And the way that God demonstrates here in Exodus, the way he demonstrates his love, the way he demonstrates his faithfulness is by providing for his people. But if you would put your hand there, and go to John chapter 6, you would see that Christ himself says, I am that provision. And so the image of bread that is alluded to is typifying Christ, who he himself says, I am the provision for my people. Go to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, in verses 31 to 35, he says, <coughs> Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And what he's saying there is, don't put your faith and hope in keeping the Mosaic covenant. He's saying it's only faith in the Father, faith in God himself. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And in verse 34 in John chapter 6, Jesus says, Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread. And Jesus says, and he slows down and he lets them know, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. Man, that is sweet news. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Christ takes the symbol of manna in Exodus and says, no, that was simply material, physical food that will feed you momentarily. But I, that is a picture of me, but I am the eternal bread. And if you eat of me, your soul will never hunger again. Now I imagine, I imagine that there are folks, if you've not come to Christ or you don't know Christ, I imagine you're probably going from one place to another, trying to fulfill that spiritual nourishment that Christ himself only can fulfill. He says, I am the bread of life. But not only that, he says, I'm the water 
under the water. In Exodus 17, Moses was commanded by God. And in verse 6, he says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out that the people may drink. But I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. We know the story that they were thirsty in the wilderness and there was no source of water. God told Moses as a prophet, strike the rock and there will be water that would gush forth. Moses struck the rock and the Israelites were saved as they did have fresh water to drink. And now Paul says this about Christ. In chapter 10 verses 1 to 4, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Notice the Old Testament allusion. The cloud was the presence of God that followed his people. That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all were given the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. So all of our provision, your spiritual provision, I think that sometimes in American evangelicalism, we think we just share the gospel, people get saved, and then all of a sudden you have to walk this Christian life on your own strength. No, brothers and sisters. This provision tells me I need him every day. I need to feast on Christ every day. I need a drink of Christ every day. And if you are a new Christian, perhaps you may not know this, but as you grow as a Christian and maturity and you get knocked around and the trials come and the storms come, you start to realize that, Lord, I really, I don't got this. You know how folks say, you got this, you got this. I don't got this. I don't, I don't have it. That's why Christ said what? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. We need him. Amen. That's a good Christmas story too, right? So Jesus is our provision. Jesus is the son. The son. If you would look, if you would write down in Exodus chapter 4, well, why don't you turn there? Since you guys, some of you have electronic books, it doesn't really matter, right? You can get there really quick. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22. Notice he says, and this is uh, God's pronouncements. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So here, God the Father says that Israel is his son, his firstborn. The word firstborn doesn't necessarily mean the first people that were originated. Firstborn is the one of promise, is the one that receives the inheritance. And God says it is through Israel. And if you recall, there's all these redemptive themes. If we recall from Abraham to Isaac through Jacob, you recall he's saying right, right on down. But there's a problem because Israel was sent into the wilderness as a testing 
And Israel was the disobedient son. We know that. Israel was called to, uh, to obey the law. And Israel failed in the wilderness. And Jesus Christ, he, he fulfills the perfect son. Where Israel failed, Christ fulfills. Where Israel was imperfect, Christ is absolutely perfect. Where Israel failed to complete the law, Christ himself fulfilled every aspect of the law. Such that in John chapter 8 verse 29, Jesus himself says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Now listen to what Jesus says about himself. For I always do that which pleases the Father. The things that are pleasing to him. So not, not only is Jesus our provision or, the, or that Jesus is our Passover lamb, but Jesus is our obedient son to the Father. He is our righteousness, if you would add that. He is the one who completes all that we have failed in ourselves. Jesus is the presence of God amongst us. He is the presence of God amongst us. In Exodus 33, in verses 14 to 15, he says, and he said, my presence will go with you. Do you remember Moses says, I don't want to go unless you come with us, God. Oh boy, I, isn't that a great posture to be in? I'm not going unless you go with us. And, and, and God says to Moses, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. <laughs> then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. And so Moses says, I'm not going without your presence. I don't want just directions from you. I don't want just to tell me the street signs how to get somewhere. I remember uh, when our kids were smaller, we would go camping and be, we would camp and it'd be so dark. We would only have our headlights and sometimes the kids would have they would not bring batteries for their headlights and they would die and they would have to go to the bathroom and I said oh here's my headlight and they would you know make it out the tent and have to go find the restroom but they would say I, I would say oh it's just right over there I could see it and they would say that that I'm it's dark over there. I'm like, no, just go over there. You'll, you'll make it. You'll be fine. Dad, I want you to go with me. I want you to go with me. Just being with me reminds me you love me. With me reminds me of your care. With me reminds me of your provision. With me, I don't want principles. I don't want abstract ideas. I want you. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. You can't get more Christmassy than this verse. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 23. Are you following? Behold. Oh, you guys know this verse. You put this on your Christmas cards and your Costco pictures if you still do that. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. By the way, Manny's real name is Emmanuel, by the way, because he was born on Christmas Day. 
But it, here, here's, here's what it means. Look, which translated means God, what? With us. That's amazing. I don't know what you're going through. You're going through a difficult time. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, he is with you. He's not just giving you principles, although we have it. He's not just giving you words. He's with you. It's interesting. I just kind of was thinking about it. The first chapter of Matthew chapter 1 says God with us. The last chapter of Matthew is Matthew chapter 28 when he says go make disciples of all nations. And what does he say? And lo I am with you even to the end of the age. Well then I could do anything. You know, a lot of times ministry can be very difficult. But if, if he's just with us, we're fine, right? We can go through hardships. We can have difficulties. We can go through d- tears. We can hold each other's hand and pray as long as he is with us. Amen. He's a promise. We remember in Exodus, there's the Mosaic Covenant He was a promise to Moses and the Israelites. The Mosaic Covenant did not replace the Abrahamic Covenant. And all I'm saying is there was a covenant is a promise uh, in, in the Old Testament. God himself would say, I would unilaterally keep my promise to you. I say Mosaic because it was given to Moses. The law was given in its ceremonial, civil, and moral aspects was given for two reasons. It described the kind of behavior God required for that covenant relationship. I will be your God. You will be my people. And my people live like this. But it was to show them that they absolutely could not keep it. And needed internal redemption. It was a preparation for the Savior. So that was Jesus our promise. So in a nutshell... If we were to look at how Christ is in the book of Exodus, those are some themes that we can see. He is our, he's our sacrifice. He's our deliverance. He's our provision. He's the obedient son. He's, he's our presence of God amongst us. He's the promise. Next is the Messiah in Leviticus. The Messiah in Leviticus. Now, Leviticus, in a nutshell, gives a further explanation of the sacrifices, the priesthood, and a need for the pardon from sin. It describes how all of life is to be lived for God and how a holy God dwells with his people through the ritual of sacrifices and ceremonies. The system displays, as you look at the system and the ceremonies, the system itself displays how overwhelming it is. How absolutely impossible it is if one tries to earn righteousness through the law. We know this from James chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And so in Leviticus, it's this outline of these things that you need to do, these things that you have to be, these things that you got to do. But we do see that in Leviticus, in, amongst those laws, there's themes of mediation. 
That there was a high priest who would sacrifice for Israel. And that mediation, Christ himself says, I'm the fulfillment of that mediation. And that's why we don't have sacrifices anymore. He says that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. There is one God, one mediator also between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. We see as they sacrifice in Leviticus in the tabernacle, we see that there was this idea of substitution. That there would be a sacrifice that would be substituted for his people and their sins. And that there's this idea of atonement, which is the payment for sins so that man and God can be reconciled. We know that this was ever ongoing, ever continual. And we see that from Hebrews that they continually do the, did that, continually did the sacrifices. And yet Christ himself says he is the final payment for it. He gives himself up as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. But not only that, we also see in the book of Leviticus themes of faithfulness and the grace of God. Turn with me to Leviticus 26. We'll see one aspect of that. And I appreciate your patience with me as we're trying to do four books of the Bible in one hour. So we'll try and do that. Leviticus chapter 26. Now you recall, you'll see this. The sin of Israel mirrors our own, but in it offers the occasion of the grace of God to be displayed in full glory and full power. You would not know how good your God is. You would not know how forgiving your God is. Now notice he says in Leviticus chapter 26 and verses 44 to 45. He says, yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. Notice. Nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. God says, I will never break my promise. For I am the Lord their God. And why? Look at 45. But I will remember... For them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God and I am their Lord. And so God himself in the book of Leviticus is referencing the book of Exodus is referencing the book of Genesis as also referenced all the way in Colossians as the deliverer for his people. Can you just imagine as you sit here and think and dwell look at that, those words. That the reason that you, all that you enjoy in Christ, every spiritual blessing, forgiveness, adoption as children of God, the fellowship of the saints. These are all doctrines we hold near and dear. His word, the presence of the Holy Spirit, assurance of salvation. That is knowing I am saved, not because of what I do, but because of what God has done in Christ Jesus. Answered prayer all stems from the covenant God has made to Israel, which is fulfilled in Christ. So all of that stems, that has that same line from Genesis, Exodus, and now to Leviticus. And now we move on to the Messiah in the book of Numbers. The Messiah in the book of Numbers. As we get into the book of Numbers, after much time in Sinai, 
the fledgling nation is ready to enter into the promised land. If you remember, if you've been listening in your Sunday school, uh, they send 12 spies to survey the land and its inhabitants. Ten of them doubt God and tell their countrymen that they should fear the inhabitants and not believe the promises of God for the land. You recall they sent 12 spies. The other two, Joshua and Caleb, were the only ones who believed God and said, and said no, we should take the land. But the 10 people caused doubt in the people. Oh, that's, that's exactly what happens. Instead of following what God was, they cause, and they start to sow disunity. Joshua and Caleb, they were outnumbered as far as the majority, but they were completely right. And they started sowing disunity. They started sowing disbelief. They started sowing doubt. And what starts to happen is the people don't follow what the word of God says. They don't believe in his promises. And because of it, they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Then a new generation finally starts to take the land. Numbers displays the sinful rebellion of God's people. Their failure of keeping the Mosaic Covenant and God's faithfulness to his promises nonetheless. One author wrote it this way to kind of summarize the book of Numbers. Other rebellions were recorded and it becomes clear that Israel is incapable of keeping the covenant. The positive side of this gloomy fact is that faith, faithlessness and failure never prevail against the faithlessness, faithfulness of God. Oh, I love that. He, what he's saying is, if you are truly in Christ and you have sinned, it will not overpower the faithfulness of God to forgive you in it. If you deal rightly with that sin. Every time the grace and covenant faithfulness of God are highlighted. We are made to look to the future. When the problem of human sin will be truly overcome. In one surprisingly unimposing redeeming act. And what he's saying is this. If you read the book of Numbers. And as you see these cycles. You'll see this cycle. Israel is following God. Following his commandments. They start to complain or they start to sin. And down they go into their sin. And they see the consequences of their sin and God disciplines them either through a neighboring nation or something like that or some kind of trial. Then they repent of their sin and then they start to follow God and then they start to go back down and sin. And then you see this cycle goes over and over and over and over and it leads you to this point as you read the book of Numbers. When is this going to end? Why, you read it and you, you almost get impatient with Israel. In our own self-righteousness, in our own pride, we'll read it and say, wow, how could they do that? But don't we do that? We're soaring right after summer camp. We're walking with God. And then all of a sudden we just kind of start going back to our old patterns. And we repent. And we're soaring again and then we go back to our old patterns. You know what it displays to me is the very faithfulness of God in sending his own son to make an end of it all. 
by fully fulfilling all my cycles that I have failed in. So now, when I'm in this cycle, I try and get out of it a little bit faster by repenting a little bit faster, but I don't get stuck. I don't get stuck. I don't say, oh man, I'm such a sinner. I can't do anything. I can't get up. I can't get out of bed. I, I, I failed so much, God. Why would you have anything to do with me? I don't get stuck because as, the, as my sense of my own sin grows, as we should all have that as a Christian, that, you, that the sense of your sin should grow, sin becomes increasingly more sinful. The sense of the Savior should grow. The sense of the cross should grow. The sense of the Son should grow. Now, there is no more pointed act than what Numbers talks about in the bronze serpent. So I think that's one major theme you need to look at. How does the book of Numbers point to Christ? It's through the bronze serpent. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. I think it's worth it to look at Numbers chapter 21. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, now we're in Numbers. Wow. We're doing pretty good. Numbers chapter 21. Now we look at verses <coughs> 4 to 9. Then they sat out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. They're the ultimate, are we there yet? Kind of ultimate, are we there yet? Backseat drivers kind of thing. Then the people spoke against God and Moses. See, they already forgot what they were rescued out of. Oh, don't think you don't get there too. You do. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Do you understand the heart of that? God, why did you deliver me? My life is now harder. Why am I a Christian? Now my friends make fun of me at school. Or ever since you said that I would have this abundant life, but I didn't know this abundant life meant trials all the way through. So that's what the Egyptians are doing with their physical life. And that's what we do with our spiritual life. If you're honest. God, I thought being a Christian was going to be easy. And you come to realize that it's actually harder to be a Christian in the core, right? I actually have to live like I'm a child of God. Now, he says... The people spoke out against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. They're complaining. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. So that many people of Israel died. Just ungrateful people. So the people came to Moses and said, 
They realize we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord. Intercede with the Lord, not let's pray ourselves. Intercede for us. You speak to him. You notice? That he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, sit it on the standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. This serpent is a symbol made out of bronze. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard. He just put it on a pole. And it came about, notice, that if any serpent bit a man, when he looked at to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now here's what's happening. They're complaining. They're all condemned to die. They didn't thank God for his deliverance. Now they're complaining about it. They grumbled up their complaints up, up to heaven. And they were all condemned to die. And now Moses, he makes this bronze serpent serpent as as given by God himself as a way out. So Moses puts this serpent. A serpent, by the way, is a cursed. It's a cursed creature. And he puts it on a standard. And all they have to do is look. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do ceremonies. You don't have to do rituals. You don't have to walk on your knees and circle. You don't have to do pilgrimages to Mecca. You don't have to do pilgrimages to Jerusalem. You don't have to do anything just by faith. Just look. And the Bible says you will live. And that's how the Israelites lived. And Jesus says, that's about me. It's amazing. Because now we go to the most famous verse in the whole of Bible. Go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. You see, the only verse that's really shared in the football stadiums is verse 16. But you don't understand the whole context unless you read it. (laughs) We know this famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Look at verse 14, which is completely skipped over. You never see... On a poster at a football game, John 3, 14 and 15. Have you ever, I've never seen that. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will, will in him have eternal life. And then he says, for God so loved the world. So what is he saying Jesus is saying, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, which was accursed, and all you had to do is look because they were already condemned. He's saying the world itself is condemned. Already. The whole world is, die, is dead in their sins. And I will be raised up on the cross, and I will be accursed for my people. If you but just believe and look upon me, you will be saved. Then he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The bronze serpent, Christ, raising up the cross, looking unto the serpent, 
simple belief in Christ. God created all of us that we would glorify him and honor him and we have fallen we have sinned we have been separated because of our of our sin and our relationship there's this huge gap between us and God does the impossible the unthinkable it thousands of years ago he has promised from Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy and all through the Old Testament that he would send the Messiah and he sent his son born of a virgin born in the manger of no repute, of a people who couldn't even find a hotel room to stay in. This baby was born, says I would be born with a mission, grew, did all the requirements that you and I needed to do because we could not do it. We fail him time and time again. And then he went to the cross to be raised up as a bronze serpent. As anyone would look on him would be saved. And now the Bible says to you, my friend, if you don't know him, will you look at him? Will you have faith? I'm not talking about Santa. I'm not talking about elves. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. That's not Christmas. This is Christmas. Will you look at him? Will you believe in him? Will you trust in him? I beg you, you do it. Quit fooling around. Quit messing around. Quit playing church if that's what you're doing. You're not fooling him. Are you his child? Hasn't he shown you in scripture time and time again? This is my promise to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The greatest Christmas gift you could ever receive is his son himself. And yet folks mock him. Laugh at him. You say Merry Christmas to someone, the wrong person, they get mad at you. my prayer is you would trust in Christ. Lastly, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 18, there's to be this unique prophet, the prophet, priest, and king. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you. Look at this text. A prophet like me from among you. Look at verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded. <laughs> like you. Well, what is Moses like? Uh, turn to the towards the end of Deuteronomy chapter 34 verses 10 to 12. Deuteronomy 34, 10 to 12, he says, Since that time no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent to him to perform the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, and for all the mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. Now notice 
what is, what is this prophet from chapter 18, chapter 34? What, what, why did he say, a prophet like me from among you? Well, he had to be of your brothers who is an Israelite. He had to be like Moses. He had to be authorized to declare God's word and authority. He had to have intimate fellowship with the father such that he saw him face to face. He had to perform miracles in public before the nations. He had to be a lawgiver as Moses would. He had to be a mediator as Moses prayed for Israel's preservation. He had to be a deliverer as someone who would deli- as Moses delivered his people from Egypt. And I just want to as we're ending this, I want to talk to you about this unique prophet that Moses, who was prophet, priest, and king, the only other person who can perfect, even Moses himself sinned, and he didn't see the promised land. But the perfect Moses, the prophet, priest, and king is Christ himself. Now, we end in Acts chapter 3. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And you will notice that this he uses now, they're using the same language because that which is in Deuteronomy is now referenced in the book of Acts at the beginning, at the start of the church. <clears throat> While he was clinging in Acts chapter 3 to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. That's where they were preaching. They didn't have a church building. Isn't that great? They didn't have a church building. Jeremy, they're preaching at the portico. Right? But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if our own power or piety we had made him walk? Now the Old Testament references are coming. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. That's all in Genesis, correct? Right? You following? has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate. <laughs> he decided to release him, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer, put to death the prince of life. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. He, he healed a man, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand, when? By the mouth of all the prophets. That is Christ, that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now here's the call, therefore repent and return. That's the only right response, my friend. Repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away. Oh, look at this. Look at this verse, verse 19. I love this. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You know what that refreshing is? Knowing you're forgiven. Knowing you don't have to be enslaved to your sin. I like that refreshing. Knowing I can wake up with peace. Knowing that I'm not arguing with other people, but I just have this time of refreshing because I have the Prince of Peace. That he may send Jesus the Christ anointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. 
about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Now here's the kicker. Are you ready? Are you listening? Verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren to whom you shall heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that very soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Moses was speaking about Christ who would be raised up a prophet like him. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king where Moses even failed. So brothers and sisters, if you're here worshiping Christ, I pray that this warmed your heart. There's, there is no love like God's love for his people. There is none. There is no, there is no planning, no caring, careful thought, no intricacy, no attention to detail in his love like the Lord Jesus Christ as his coming to save you. That is Christmas. If you don't know him, I pray you would and come to know this time of refreshing. You mean he'll forgive me all of my sins? All of them. All of them. All of them. That's what Christmas is about. Father, we pray, would you help us to sing? And Lord, would we bellow out your glory? For we know the theology behind it. We know the scriptures behind it. You are always faithful. Always true. Thank you so much that we see Christ everywhere. Help us to sing in Jesus' name. Amen.